Welcome back to our discussion of the works of Ray Bradbury. Today we are taking on the first half of the short story collection, The Illustrated Man. And I'm already a little out of my depth here. Uh, I've never actually talked about a full short story collection on this podcast, or ever really had the intention to. Um, this is a kind of weird undertaking, honestly. Um, like, multiple times in the past I've done a lecture on just one short story. Um, when I do my humanities class, we, we talk about the devil and Tom Walker and the devil and Daniel, Daniel Webster as sort of their own independent entities. Um, a lot of time, you know, I, I handle like a full play, something like Moliere's Don Juan or Dr. Faustus is, you know, a one-shot lecture. Like, I, I've dealt with shorter works and sort of used a lecture as an opportunity to kind of like do a deep dive into just the one work. Um... But I've never done the whole mixing and matching thing that, that you kind of have to do when you are talking about a whole short story collection. Um, and The Illustrated Man kind of sits at the, the sort of, like, balancing point between, on the one hand, the just totally mix and matched short story collection, uh, but on the other hand, the more thematically oriented or, or sort of, like, unified short story collection. Like, The Martian Chronicles was itself effectively a short story collection. Like, I argued that on, on several occasions, and it was really obvious from some of the, you know, discrepancies between the stories. Um, but at the same time, they were all unified by this one common uh, sort of overarching plot, the, the setting, the theme. Um, you know, it did work as a sort of stitched-together novel, even if it was just kind of patchwork. Um, I think, too, of a short story collection like Graham Greene's May We Borrow Your Husband, which is just thematically linked by being all of these stories about sex and relationships and, and sort of, like, um, pairings devolving for one reason or another. Um, I suspect that I will one day do a lecture on, you know, like, May We Borrow Your Husband, just because I like that collection so much and I do want to take another stab at it sometime. Um, but The Illustrated Man is... Not that. Like, it's not a full-fledged total mix-and-match thing. Like, you can tell that there is some sort of deliberation behind these stories' inclusion, and there are a lot of similar themes, likely because this is still early Bradbury we're talking about. Like, at this point, I think The Martian Chronicles and Fahrenheit 451 came out in, like, 50 and 51, respectively. And The Illustrated Man was also published in 51. So, like, three of the biggest, most important works in Bradbury's career were all published within a series of, like, two or three years. Um, and while many of these stories were collected from other times, again, 49, 48, I think they, they go back that far, but most of them are within these couple of years, it's clear that Bradbury is thinking about the same ideas every time that he is putting pen to paper at this point. You know, we're seeing very similar themes and ideas and even locations and settings here in The Illustrated Man that we saw in The Martian Chronicles. Um, you know, the, the two stories, the fire balloons and, and the long, or uh, the, the other foot, both take place on the sort of Martian Chronicles version of Mars. Um, the fire balloons is honestly usually included in the Martian Chronicles instead of way in the middle of the air. Um... Likewise, the other foot is sort of the natural sequel to Way in the Middle of the Air, which makes this whole business that much more complicated. Um, so, you know, we see he's kicking around those ideas, but he's also incorporating, 
you know, stuff that we haven't seen before. There, there are stories like The Velt um, or The Long Rain that, that have a sort of different approach. Um, and some of these are kind of perfect as short stories. Like, that's the thing about Bradbury. As much as, you know, we're focusing on his novels just because they give us more to talk about and they're, you know, largely considered the greater of his works, you know, Bradbury is a short story writer first and foremost, and his greatest masterpieces tend to be in the short story form, I tend to think. Like, I love Fahrenheit 451. You'll never get me to say otherwise. Um, but by comparison, you know, to, like, the rest of his work, it is an outlier. Um, it is unusual, and it grew out of a short story to begin with. Um, and this is not uncommon, especially for science fiction writers. Like, I love some of Kurt Vonnegut's works, you know, like Cat's Cradle or Slaughterhouse-Five, um, but I honestly think his best work is when writing short stories. Like, by comparison, you know, I just love Harrison Bergeron or, you know, Tomorrow and Tomorrow and Tomorrow or The Foster Portfolio. Um... The great thing about the science fiction short story is that it gets in and it gets out pretty effortlessly. Um, like, science fiction short stories can introduce one concept, like one invention, or, or one situation, or one, you know, idea for an alien world, or a species, or, you know, some sort of technological social development. Um, Explore it for a little while and then get off it without having to, you know, go into all of the business of world building that has become, you know, so much a part of the science fiction genre these days. Um, so I love all of those early science fiction stories. Like here in the 40s through the 60s, you'll see a lot of these just because that was the main way that people were publishing science fiction. You know, that's what uh, uh, Gernsback was doing. That's what John W. Campbell was doing. Um, all of the major pulp publications at this point love just dropping in one of these crazy idea science fiction stories, you know, rooted in science or not, as the case may be, explore it to its natural conclusion, and, you know, there you go. You've got some of the greatest classics of the form right in those pages. Um so it's natural to talk about this stuff. It's just difficult to structure when you're, you know, talking about it critically in the format of a lecture. Um, so what I want to do when, and now that we're talking about the illustrated man, now that we're tackling it, I want to arrange these stories not chronologically, but by theme. Um, I want to talk about what each of these stories kind of does in the perspective of the greater world of Bradbury's work. Um, because, like I said, we're seeing some of these themes again after having seen them in the Martian Chronicles, after having seen them in, the, in Fahrenheit 451. Um, we will see them echo one another. Like, I can pretty easily group some of these stories by their approach, by their thematic uh, resonance, by all of these things. Um, and because they're just sort of naturally falling into those categories, at least as I read them, um, this is not to say that we should read them as, you know, clearly being members of these categories. This is just how it struck me here at this particular reading. Um, I should emphasize that we could definitely have come up with different groups or organized the groups differently, or some of the stories that I put in one group could belong in another group. All that is true. Um, but generally speaking, I think approaching these thematically is the smart way to go. I'm also not going to spend a whole lot of time summarizing, in all likelihood. Like, for some of the stories, I do want to get deep into what, what the story is saying and doing and how it works. Um, for others, not so much. 
Um, so with that in mind, I want to start with the framing device. The Illustrated Man vignette itself. Um, and part of the reason why I want to start with it is because, obviously, it's presented as a framing device here and it actually serves really nicely as a otherwise disconnected short story framing device. Um, also because we are going to see it come back around in the epilogue, so, you know, we should be mindful of this. Um, but also because this is a an image that we're going to see often in Bradbury. Like, we haven't really run into it yet, but especially when we get to Something Wicked This Way Comes is our next reading, um, you will see sort of Bradbury's interest in this illustrated man iconography again. Um, and he has other short stories outside of this collection that, that resonate with this idea as well. Um, so the illustrated man is what it says on the box. He's a tattooed man. Um, here we have to kind of point to Bradbury's own childhood and the sort of experience that he would have had in the, in the like, 30s and 40s growing up um, in backwoodsy Illinois. Um, we have to recognize that this is an amusement park thing. Uh, this is a carnival thing. Um, in this particular time in the history of America, we had these roaming groups of carnies going around and, you know, setting up shop and, you know, this being a big high holiday for the kids in town who otherwise had very little to do in their afternoons. Um, and as a result, like, this became a major shaping factor for a lot of kids at this time. And Bradbury especially seems to have been very fond of the carnival if, again, the, you know, framing device here and the whole premise of something wicked this way comes is any indication. Um, so the illustrated man is one of the freaks in the carnival. Um, like, I think of... Uh, I think of the, the novel and, you know, Guillermo del Toro's recent adaptation of Nightmare Alley as, like, sort of one of the quintessential literary presentations of this um, phenomenon. But, like, you've got this whole carnival, which, you know, it has its rides and its games and, you know, everything that you would expect to find at a carnival these days. But you would also have, like, a series of sort of, like, booths or shows um, where you could pay your dime or pay your quarter or get in and see something surprising or shocking or dangerous or just off-putting in some cases. Um, and for many of these, they were just like sort of horrors presented as though this is shocking and upsetting. Um, and this, you know, definitely falls in line with like the sort of P.T. Barnum freak show circus imagery that we see in like something like the greatest showman so you've got your bearded lady and your really small person and you know a, lo a lot of that sort of thing but sort of a feature of these carnival acts the the sort of freak shows were the illustrated man or the tattooed man um i.e someone who is basically tattooed head to toe um or you know everything except the face in, in some cases like it could be you know sold to you as being something exotic, like, you know, here is this strange person from overseas who has been tattooed head to toe according to some pagan or dark ritual, um, which is often how it was presented. Like, this is not me just wildly stereotyping here. This was the stereotype that was dominant here in America in the 40s and 50s. Um, but it also could just be, you know, somebody who had gotten a lot of tattoos as a career or during their career as a sailor or something who just came back and decided to turn it into a living. Um, there were a lot of ways that this happened. 
Um, what Bradbury seems to have experienced was he probably had some kind of, like, really deep fascination or even trauma related to an illustrated man at one point. Like, this was one of those things that he just fixated on. Um, and I, I, I don't presume to understand why or how. Like, I don't think he's ever written about this as a recurrent image in his, in his work and in his writing. Um, but it is something that is there. Like, you'll notice that the illustrated man in some Something Wicked This Way Comes is one of the primary villains. Um, here, he is intimidating and dangerous, and you will find that, like, there's a horror and, and sort of encompassing him as well. Um, he has another story elsewhere that's literally called The Illustrated Man, which, you know, has similar vibes and similar energy. Um... So we can sort of, like, psychologically extrapolate that there's some reason that this image is lingering in his work. What I want to emphasize, though, is what he does with it. Um, here we have a couple of dimensions to this illustrated man. Um, first off, he is a vagrant. He is a wanderer. We encounter him while our unnamed protagonist slash narrator is just wandering around, both in a kind of vulnerable position... Um, like, these are both just outcasts in their own right. Um, the Illustrated Man tells us that, you know, he has been consistently kicked out of carnivals because any time that he has spent a significant amount of time with another person, apparently one of the spaces on his back, uh, or on his, like, forearm or something, will transform into an image revealing that person's death. Um, which is, you know heavy-duty, ominous stuff here just to begin with. Um, but especially when we find out that, like, in addition to, you know, his, his apparently prophetic tattoos being cursed upon him by some, you know, horrible witch person or something, um, that the illustrations that he does have elsewhere, which are more typical or more traditional anyway, are prone to moving at night. Uh, which is why we have the stories. Like, these, each of the 18 stories in this collection are supposedly some of the tattoos that this man has all over his body, moving and telling their stories in the middle of the night. Um, so, a couple of things here. Um, first off, like, this is just fanciful and fantastic and has that sort of, like, vaguely spooky horror vibe, which I very much associate with, with Bradbury. And I kind of love it. Like... As far as a cheesy premise for a collection of science fiction stories go, it's pretty cool. Um, and it makes for some great illustrations, too. Like, I have the old, like, 90s Bantam Spectra edition, and, you know, it literally just has on the cover this random dude with his back covered in all of the images from the stories, and it's one of my all-time favorite science fiction covers, even though, like, generally, my, I, I don't care so much for the 90s illustrations. Um, I get weirdly preoccupied with science fiction illustrations. I'm sorry if that becomes super obvious by the end of this lecture series. Um... So, as a pure concept, I think it's really cool. Like, I, I think it works, I think it functions for introducing the story, but I also want to sort of dwell on the theming here. Um, there is something ominous about these stories and their presentation here, and there is something, like, inherently sinister about it, and I like that too. Um, in a sense, this book is presented to us like a carnival uh, a carnival show. It is presented as though it is a fun house or a house of horrors. Um, we are meant to be a little spooked here. And I should mention, like, 
Bradbury's got a horror streak. He is not a horror writer. Like, by all means, anytime that I talk to somebody who is familiar with Bradbury's work, like, it never really scares them the way that something like Stephen King or Danny Lewski's House of Leaves or, you know, the works of Joe Hill are legitimately horrifying. Um, they are not meant to scare in that way. But they are meant to sort of thrill and frighten, if that makes sense. Like, something wicked this way comes top to bottom is just spook show. Um, and here in The Illustrated Man, a lot of the darkness that surrounds these stories has a sort of popcorn-y, you know, carnival trick kind of uh, theming and presence here. Um, very few of the stories in this collection are outright scary, though I'd give you, you know, some points on the city, which we'll talk about next, next time. Um, but many of them have this kind of funhouse twist to them. You know, this is the age of, of, you know, the Twilight Zone. This is the age of early Doctor Who. This is the age of, like, you know, taking a science fiction premise and, and turning it into a, an almost cheeseball shock twist ending. Some of which has, you know, like, deep thematic resonance. Some of which is just kind of silly and over the top. Um, and we'll find examples of both in here. Like, if I'm not mistaken, Bradbury himself wrote multiple episodes of The Twilight Zone, and, you know, kind of had his own sort of cottage industry um, being a writer of these sorts of, you know, ironic twist endings. Um, and I kind of love this stuff. Like, I was having a conversation with a student not too long ago about the short stories of Roald Dahl, who also does this quite a bit. Like, Dahl has his own very distinct breed of, like, kind of ironic comeuppance endings in his works. Uh, like, I've written about it on my Patreon page, but I imagine that anyone who's read any of his works is kind of familiar with this. You know, just like in Charlie and the Chocolate Factory, where all of the bad children get their just desserts, um, like Mike TV is zapped into a television set and you know, Violet Beauregard gets turned into a blueberry because of her excessive gum chewing, and what's-her-face, the extremely nasty, like, entitled little brat girl gets chucked down the garbage chute by the squirrels who call her a bad nut, or alternatively, the goose and the golden eggs, if you're more familiar with the Gene Wilder movie, um, which we should be thinking about. Bradbury definitely uh, dedicates the illustrated man. Uh, to our guy, Gene Wilder, here. Oh, nope, I'm mistaken. Uh, it's one of his other books that is dedicated to Gene Wilder. Um, but anyway, yes. What we should emphasize here is this is the sort of mentality that Bradbury is using as well. His short stories are often structured with this kind of slow or fast building suspense up to this kind of ironic twist ending. And this characterizes a lot of his works here in The Illustrated Man. Um, honestly, they characterized quite a few of his works in The Martian Chronicles as well. Um, you'll remember, like, we've got that kind of weird story about the guy who opens the hot dog stand on the highway and the Martians try to come to him and he kills a bunch of them and then it turns out they're only trying to, like, give him the deed to half of Mars, which itself turns into this shock twist because it turns out that the Earth is destroying itself even as we speak. Like, that one's pretty ham-handed, but that's kind of exemplary for what Bradbury is frequently doing with much more skill and aplomb here in The Illustrated Man. And I love this kind of storytelling. 
Like, don't get me wrong, I can totally appreciate a lot of the more subtler, sort of slower build short stories that are more sort of intimately looking at the way that, like, individual characters are interacting. Like, I've got my collection of Raymond Chandler, you know, I, I can appreciate that. But in science fiction and genre fiction especially, I love this sort of pulpy, you know, shock twist ending, this sort of ironic comeuppance thing. You know, even today you can see writers working in this kind of mold and formula. Like, I love the short stories of Kix and Lou today where, you know, the world almost always seems to end at the end of his stories, um, but usually after, like, some unanticipated scientific twist occurs. Um, that's just cool. Um, and it's something that I think is kind of underrated. Like, we've... The literary community in general has sort of written off this format of story as being unnecessarily schlocky, as, as being the material for pulp magazines and pulp magazines only. Um, but it's fun, and it's interesting, and it makes for this interesting tension between the reader and, and the, the, the story. Like, I like the building of suspense. It can be done just as effectively as any, you know, deep psychological examination of human nature or suburban life or whatever it is that we're writing about. Um, so I love this stuff. I loved it when I was a kid. I love it today. Um, and I frequently have, you know, when I sit down to write, it is more often than not a story in this kind of vein, with a sort of shock twist or ironic comeuppance and ending. Um, when I am reading short story collections, I like to find these sorts of things, either in the literary world or outside of it. Um, so with that in mind, let's talk about how that plays out here in Bradbury. And the first one that I want to emphasize is the Velt. Um, the Velt is one of my all-time favorite short stories, just by any writer anywhere. Um, it's the starting short story here in The Illustrated Man. It's got that perfect ironic comeuppance thing going on. Um, it's just, it's picture perfect. Like, it is basically a masterclass in how to do one of these. Um, and the setup is pretty straightforward. So we have our big concept here, the big science fiction idea. Namely, we have this room, the nursery. And the nursery reflects whatever the children want. Like, either it's telepathically hooked up to them, or apparently they've, like, gotten into the works and are now manipulating it. Um, and apparently the deal is that it just gives the kids what they want. It reflects their desires back to them. Um, and apparently this has gone a bit wrong. Uh, now the, the nursery is only ever stuck portraying this African veldt with these lions devouring the corpses of some unknown animal. Um, and we see this transpire not through the kid's perspective, but through the adult's perspective, which is itself kind of unusual for Bradbury. More often than not, when Bradbury is going to look at a family, he's going to look at it from the kid's perspective. Um, we saw this in the Martian Chronicles, in the Million Year Picnic. Um, we kind of see it a little bit in Fahrenheit 451, insofar as we're introduced to Clarice, and she kind of becomes the sort of moral center of the story, even after she dies. Um, it's definitely very apparent in many of his other works, both Dandelion Wine and Something Wicked This Way Comes are told from the children's perspective. And we can see it in his other stories here. Like, we can see in The Rocket Man especially, it's all the kids' perspective that we're sort of reading this from. Um, so the fact that we are not looking at it from the kids' perspective here is interesting for Bradbury, but obviously very much sort of the whole point of this story. Instead, we're seeing it from the parents' perspective. 
And the parents kind of coming to the realization that there is something wrong, like really wrong with their kids. Um, so they're, they have concerns. Like, they talk to their children, who, by the way, are named Peter and Wendy. Catch the Peter Pan reference there. Um, again, we've got kids who refuse to grow up as sort of like our central, you know, characters here. I'm not sure how intentional this was by Bradbury, but this one seems pretty intentional. Um, oftentimes, Bradbury's naming conventions just come out of left field, and he's like, oh, and that's probably why I did that. But here it seems very deliberate. Um, so anyway, they confront Peter and Wendy, and they're like, hey, why is the nursery always doing lions in the African savannah? And they're like, it's not, and they immediately run in and change it. And the parents look in, and it's something completely different, and they know that something is up, but they, they can't, you know, pin it to their kids, so they wait. Um, they talk to a child psychologist who comes in, checks out the room, sort of does a reading here and is like, yeah, this is bad. Something is very messed up here. At which point the kids forbid the children to use the nursery altogether. Like, they just ban them from it outright. You know, it's kind of like grounding your kids from watching TV in some way. But the kids throw an absolute fit, as you would expect. Um, and the father relents briefly, at which point the kids run into the nursery, immediately turn it back to Africa, and then when mom and dad come in to get them, they are devoured by the lions. And that's our big shock twist comeuppance here. The lions are in fact real, and the bodies that they have been devouring are have apparently been mom and dad this whole time. The fantasy that the children have been indulging in has been watching their parents be devoured by lions. And there's a few dimensions that this story just sort of operates in that I kind of love and that have very much always resonated with me. Again, first off, Bradbury is a master at building the tension here. The way that, like, there's this scream that we can't identify, but we know that it's familiar in some way before we realize that it's, you know, the parents' own screams that they've been hearing up until this point. That's expertly done here. Um, the fact that, like, the parents keep reassuring themselves, they're not real lions. They're, they're just fake, like holographic images. They're just light. The, the nursery can't actually hurt people. You know, those reassurances and how false they ring throughout most of the story, again, just perfectly executed. Um, the fact that the children are so much in command of the situation. Like, effectively, what we're talking about is, you know, a variation on the, the sort of horror tropes where the children are themselves the monsters. Um, but here, there's something calculating about them. It's not like they're just monstrous or perverse or something, though that is def definitely present. They are the masterminds of this situation. And I find it really striking that Bradbury has the kind of prescience to notice that technology is going to be embraced by children before it's embraced by adults here. Like, I think of back in the 90s when I was a kid, and, you know, like, I was the one who was learning how to use the computer at school, and I was the one that figured out how to use the VCR when we got, like, the fancy one with the ability to record television shows on a timer. Like, anyone who grew up in the 90s, and probably anyone who has grown up since the 90s, is probably aware of the fact that they are more knowledgeable about technology than their parents are. Um, there's this weird sort of relationship where kids pick this stuff up faster and grown-ups slash adults slash, at this point, like boomers and beyond, rely on the younger generations to sort of teach them how to use these tools. Um, and this is perfectly sort of like 
reached at, by Bradbury. The idea that mom and dad really don't know, have an understanding of how the room works, but Peter and Wendy have this weird, like, prescient or, or sort of savant-esque affinity with the technology here. You know, this is just like mom and dad trying to, you know, put the parental blockers on the computer and the kids already knowing how to, you know, bypass those parental blockers and do exactly what they want without mom and dad being able to do a damn thing about it. Um, this is just, it's so good. Like, it's so prophetic in that respect. Because here in the 50s, you know, there, there isn't really that much technology that the kids are picking up faster than the, the adults. Like, yes, there's, you know, the microwave and other sort of, like, household appliances, something that Bradbury is also kind of lampooning here. Um, but those were household things, and therefore boring, and not actually works of entertainment that kids tend to gravitate toward. The reason why I understood how to use the computer, why I understood how to use the VCR, was because it was exciting to me that I could record movies, or that I could play video games. Um, when you have something that appeals to children and is technological, children will figure it out. And Bradbury gets that. I'm not sure how he gets it, but he does. Um... What's more, you'll also notice, like, some of the themes that are sort of dancing around this story. First off, we have that over-reliance on technology thing, something that we've seen a lot in the Martian Chronicles and Fahrenheit 451. Uh, like, the fact that the house is almost totally automated is emphasized at virtually every step of the story, to the point that when, in fact, the father decides to, to turn off the nursery, he's turning off everything along with it. The entire house is going to get shut down. And we even get that little description of the house being, like, dead. Um, the house was full of dead bodies, it seemed, Bradbury writes. It felt like a mechanical cemetery, because all of the automatic shoe tires and all of the automatic bread butterers, like, on the one hand, Bradbury really gets at this idea that, you know, having the totally automated household is sort of this feature of middle-class living. Like, this is something that George is really proud of because he has worked so hard and, you know, paid all this money for this cutting-edge, like, absolutely automated house. Um, and Bradbury has emphasized here and elsewhere that there's something dangerous about that. Like, we see that house back in the Martian Chronicles. It's totally automated, but the people aren't living there, and it's just sad and lonely and kind of haunted in its own right. Um, here we see the other side of this, namely the lack of agency on the part of everyone. Like, we see that the kids do have agency, but their agency isn't toward their parents, it's away from them. They program the house to kill their parents because the house is more of a parent to them than the parents themselves are. And on the one hand, we could read that as, you know, the dangers of automation, the dangers of spoiling these children. But on the other hand, we should also notice that the parents are themselves, like, incompetent in their own house. They can't do things anymore. Like, they have become so dependent on this house that there is no agency for them. And the fact that their kids are misbehaving is something they don't know how to deal with. They are completely apathetic and impotent in this story, um, and presumably because everything is being done for them at this point. Like, the closest we get is the psychologist telling them, you know, you have to discipline your children, you have to start taking these things away, or this will only get worse. And then they're like, oh, okay, then we finally should act, but only after we've been told to by an expert. This is 
something that we've kind of seen hovering around the margins of a lot of these stories. You know, it's there in Fahrenheit 451 as well, what with Mildred sort of being totally the, you know, housewife, but at the same time not having any responsibilities and therefore spending all of her time just watching the TV. Um, but we haven't looked at it quite as directly as Bradbury does here. Um, Bradbury seems to be suggesting to us that the automated life, all of these household conveniences, are taking something away as much as they are giving something to us. And I am very sympathetic to that. Like, I think today that, you know, a lot of the contrivances that Bradbury anticipates, like we obviously don't have automatic shoe tires or, you know, the sort of magic tables that spit up buttered bread like we see in the, the Rocket Man. Um, it's not nearly that fancy. It's not nearly that invasive to our day-to-day -day lives. Like, we're, we're not doing the Jetsons where you, the bed automatically spits you into the shower and the shower automatically, like, pats you down and scrubs you and then you automatically get, like, zapped into, you know, something that clothes you. Um, like, even the Jetsons knew that that was kind of over-the-top and satirical. Bradbury seems to think that it's a potential reality. Um, you know, again, we've got our big exhibitions and all these exciting advertisements about the kitchen of the future and so on that the, the like the 1950s were always excited about. Um, here, though, I do think he gets at something that is a bit of a modern problem, namely when you automate things, when you let technology take over certain responsibilities, those skills do suffer. Um, like, and I'm going to absolutely sound like a dinosaur here for multiple reasons, but, like, I notice, for example, that my students cannot spell their way out of a paper bag unless they've got Grammarly on their side. Um, like, all of the nasty memorization and stuff that I had to do when I was in school, all of the understanding of grammar that, like, my middle school teachers had to, like, beat into my head. Um, and I, I'm not even, you know, the worst of it. I remember my sister had to do uh, sentence diagramming back when she was at her private school, and that was, like, very tedious, but also very useful and would totally help my students today. You know, if you've got the computer doing it for you, you don't know how to do it yourself. And maybe for, you know, grammar and punctuation, that's not that big a deal, but when you take the next step and you start having Google doing the predictive text thing and having it decide what your next words are going to be, that's alarming. Like, it makes me think that these students aren't capable of thinking for themselves in some grand, you know, like, abstract sense. Like, they've for so long just been told what to think, not just in the sense of, you know, their teachers driving their ideas home, but literally, like, every time they start to produce a coherent thought, Google is already trying to anticipate and tell them what they themselves think. That's really dangerous. That's really uncomfortable. Um... And even if we're not willing to go quite that far or that hard into this sort of question and doubt, at the very least, I think of all the people who are driving with the aid of the, the GPS these days who really have no idea where they're going or what they're doing and, as a consequence, making some very poor decisions when they're, in fact, navigating interstates and highways. Like, I, to this day, do not have the Internet on my phone, which... I know has already revealed me as being someone like so much of a Luddite that we probably have no reason to, you know, listen to me anymore. But it's definitely been something I've noticed that 
you know, I can still remember how to get to places and get creative about my detours. And, you know, I actually know where I am going at any given point, And I spend time exploring areas in order to understand the lay of the land better. Where people just don't do that anymore. Like, they tell, they punch their location into Google, and Google tells them where to go, and Google anticipates when they're going to leave in the morning, and Google anticipates when they're going to come home at night. Like, it's unsettling to me. Convenient, sure, but there comes, the, the, that convenience comes with a certain expense, an expense that we don't necessarily realize initially. But the Velt is very quick to point this out. And you better believe that it's because of Bradbury that I'm this much of a Luddite. Like, Bradbury actually has a story called The Murderer, where this guy is so sick and tired of talking to people all the time via what is basically like car phones and cell phones and other telephones throughout the day, that he murders all of his devices and refuses to listen to anyone all day long, and the police arrest him and put him in jail. Because Bradbury. And that story has always resonated with me. Like, I think that that's one of his most prophetic ones. But you can definitely see a similar idea here in the Velt. Um, this idea that, you know, the parents and the children, they have forgotten how to live lives like human beings and are instead just benefiting from these technological advances. And that's dangerous. Like, I've always thought that, you know, we can... Technology breeds a certain amount of immorality. Comfort breeds a certain amount of immorality. Immorality is a luxury in our society. It's something that would go away if we suddenly ended all of our dependence on these things. Um, but that's definitely getting a little abstract and, you know, armchair sociologist. Uh, what I also want to point out, though, is obviously there is a fundamental problem with the relationship between the children and the parents here. Like, part of the reason why Bradbury takes the perspective of the parents and not the children is because the parents are actually in the position of powerlessness here. Um, they are the victims. Now, that's not to say that they are not completely without fault. Like, they have clearly spoiled their children to a fairly well. Peter and Wendy are damaged by their spoiling. Um, like, this is very clearly presented in the text. This is the downside of having a family that can afford all of these automations and can afford to sort of do away um, with all the dangers and literally produce a room that just reflects the, the kids' desires back at them. Um, but the spoiling itself here is kind of sophisticated. Like, on the one hand, we have the spoiling of the parents towards the children, which is accidental. Like, the parents don't intend to spoil the children. They are providing the greatest modern conveniences that science and technology and, you know, the world's research can offer. And that's supposedly a good thing. You know, this is what they sort of measure themselves by. This is like, we are good parents. We gave them every advantage we could. Um, but that isn't how that works. Like, Bradbury is very much emphasizing that in buying all this stuff for their kids and in making this totally modern house for, for like, the good of the family, they are, in fact, missing what makes the family a family in the first place. The relationships are very much suffering as a consequence. And since the parents think that that's all that they need to do, just chuck them in the nursery and call it a day... Well, here we're back in Fahrenheit 451 territory. Remember Mrs. Phelps talking about, you know, I don't have my, my kids except for like three days out of the month, and I just sit them in front of the television like I'm, you know, putting something in the microwave. Um, there is... This is a consistent theme in Bradbury's writing, this idea of the automation of society getting in the way of 
actual human relationships, getting in the way of actual human thinking in many cases, sort of the automation of our households becoming basically a surrogate for parenthood, which is why we have this these lines in the belt about Peter and Wendy seeing the house as being more loving and more nourishing and more close than their actual parents are. Why they now fantasize about their parents being killed because the parents are just the ones who come in and say, you can't do the fun thing. Like, I would rather just sit in front of the television all day, but then my mom comes and turns it off and I therefore resent her as a consequence. But also some of this is also in Fahrenheit 451 territory, that sort of reflection back of our own desires, closing the loop of, you know, stimulus to feedback, you know, the kids are being shown exactly what they want to see. Like, there is a clear telepathic connection here that where they are very much in control of the system, and they don't want anything different. You know, that relationship is exactly the same as the one that is being described by Captain Beatty or Faber in Fahrenheit 451. This idea that in producing all these technological wonders, what we are essentially doing is cutting ourselves off from the struggle and suffering that we need in order to develop. Um, we aren't supposed to have what we want. We cannot close that loop. We cannot turn ourselves into basically self-sufficient machines. We cannot just pleasure ourselves and not, you know, have any sort of comeuppance or, or, or consequences for that. You know, Peter and Wendy essentially have a broom pandering to their every need, and that is very unhealthy for these developing minds. They, as a consequence, turn violent. They turn spoiled. Um, they're supposed to have friction. They're supposed to engage with a world that is frequently hostile to them. That's healthy in some respect. Um, and to some degree, maybe this is Bradbury sort of like being a little conservative here, sort of stressing that, you know, children should in fact be disciplined and should in fact be, you know, taught to, to appreciate other things than just whatever they want. But this seems more true than, than purely, you know, conservative or otherwise. Like, Bradbury seems to be suggesting here that Peter and Wendy, you know, need to get out of the house, effectively. They need to be aware of other people's needs and desires. They need to have something else, sort of, or they need to be dependent on something else other than this room that just casually panders to everything that they want. What Bradbury has warned us about the television in Fahrenheit 451, he's effectively warning us about the holodeck here in the Velt. Um, the greater we get at fulfilling our own desires, the more violent and dangerous and unrestrained we will become. And that's bad news for both us individually and for society as a whole. You know, as Faber said, like, it would be fine if it was just fun and games all the time and there were no consequences, but that's without war. Like, that's without the actual hostility. That's without, you know, these people taking advantage of a hidden underclass that we never see in that novel. There's clearly not just widespread happiness. Um, as much as Bradbury is, you know, hesitant to criticize what these people are becoming in Fahrenheit 451 and here in the Velt, he is willing to say there are exterior, exterior circumstances and, and concerns that we do need to be aware of and that are getting worse as a consequence of all this navel-gazing. Um, here in the Velt, it's more personal than social, but the 
philosophy, the, the idea here still stands. The kids become murderers as a consequence of getting everything that they want, and the only people standing in their way, they can, in fact, have the power to murder. So... That's kind of the Velt as my as I read it. We could definitely talk about it more, but I've already spent like well over half of the time of this lecture just talking about the framing device and the Velt, so we do need to move on. Um, so next I want to talk about these stories that kind of have a quality of the inevitable about them. Um, like, Bradbury has numerous stories that turn out to be kind of grim and fatalistic in this collection, uh, and that have a sort of inevitability to the way that they sort of end and, and conduct themselves. Um, and probably the most obvious example is the second story in the collection, Kaleidoscope. Um, but I'd also point to The Long Rain and The Rocket Man as being pretty good examples of this idea as well. Um, in all three of these stories, Bradbury looks at space people, like spacemen, explorers, just like we saw with the first handful of stories in the Martian Chronicles, we've got these, you know, brave adventurers going out into the void and, and encountering the unknown and, you know, the potential dangers that, that go along with that. Um, in the Kaleidoscope, we see this rocket just explodes in space for reasons we can't understand or are not explained to us, and these people are now doomed to die. Like, they have no connection to the ship, there is nothing that can possibly save them, they're all just falling endlessly through space forever and ever until they will inevitably die, either because they crash into something or because, you know, like they will run out of oxygen, whatever the case may be. Um, and it is literally just tracking these characters as they sort of go through the emotional fallout of re reckoning with their own mortality. Um, in the long rain, we have a rocket that has crash-landed on Venus, and it just rains 24-7 on Venus all of the time. Um, it is literally like one small chunk of land that, you know, all of these human colonies have been set up on, and the explorers are here wandering from through this, you know, rainy jungle trying to find the sun dome, like the one shelter where an artificial sun has been set up and that will actually warm and dry them, um, which doesn't happen for most of the characters. Just about everybody either goes insane or dies halfway along the trip. Um, lastly, I point to the Rocket Man, just because this story, while being very different in structure, like, rather than being, you know, brave men suffer horrible tragedy on the way to whatever it is that they're doing bravely. Um, instead, we have just this one guy who is coming home after a long journey, you know, being a rocket man, spending time with his family, but there's this inevitability hanging over them emotionally. Namely, the mother is detached from this, from her husband, because she knows that one of these journeys will be his last, and the man is himself so enamored with his explorations that he can't find comfort and solace in staying at home. So, as a consequence, it hangs over them all that he will leave. Um, and when he does, he does, in fact, die. And we get one of our, our you know, shocker twists here in, in Bradbury's writing in, in this story as well. Um, what I want to emphasize here is that, once again, we are seeing some of the themes that Bradbury talks about in the Martian Chronicles, especially as, as part of this, you know, human exploration business. Um, namely, we have a lot of hubris in all three of these stories. Uh, in Kaleidoscope, we're very much shown that, like, 
humans were not supposed to be here. Like, this is a very hostile environment for them. Like, the, yes, they, they get exploded out into space, and, you know, they're all sort of, like, falling and reckoning with themselves. Um, and it is very much sort of like this real deep emotional psychological examination of what how they react to this catastrophe that has happened. But we should also emphasize that the world here is hostile. Like, the business of space travel is a very dangerous one, and these people are playing with fire when they engage in it. Uh, and kind of the, the sort of emotional crux of Kaleidoscope, the, the main character whose perspective we end up following here, uh, he's realizing that he hasn't lived sufficiently. Uh, that all of his life was in front of him instead of behind him. And he's thinking of this other character who he's getting mad at, Applegate, um, who has, in fact, lived, who has, in fact, the fancy car and the, the wife, and while his relationships may be broken or damaged, it kind of doesn't matter because he's had them. He gets to reside in the comfort of having done these things, where Hollis instead is just wishing that he had been able to do more of that. Um, so we have this sort of, like, we have this recognition that as much as this is new and exciting and adventurous and manly and, you know, brave, it's also inappropriate. Uh, this is not the way his life was supposed to go. Um, what Bradbury is sort of highlighting here is that as much as, you know, all of these new accomplishments and all of these brave adventures have this quality of the heroic, this sort of intensity and, and this temptation to them. You know, we are enticed into these adventures. We also should definitely recognize that we can't ignore the human realities at home. Something that is very much echoed by, again, the Rocket Man. Um, in the Rocket Man, again, it's just this guy who, you know, he is a Rocket Man. He goes into space on a regular basis. He goes for these three-month trips. And all the while, his wife and his son suffer without him. Um, and his wife refuses to cut the lawn, refuses to fix the machines that, that break. So when he comes back, he will spend all of his time being distracted, fixing them, mowing the lawn, doing the household chores, caring about his family, and not go back into space as often or as frequently. Um, as our rocket man tells his son at one point, you know, do not become a rocket man. Because when you are up there, you will always want to be here, and when you are here, you will always want to be out there. Don't start that, he says. Don't let it get hold of you. Um, what Bradbury is kind of pointing at here, I suspect, is sort of the weird parallel to the point that he's made in the belt. Like, if the belt is about closing the loop of desire, giving yourself everything you want, what he's exploring in The Rocket Man is getting to a situation where your two worlds are both equally desirable to you and cannot coexist. When The Rocket Man comes home, he inevitably starts looking at the sky, wishing to go to Mars or to the moon or to any number of other exotic worlds that he hasn't explored. Um, and when he's up there, he wishes to be home. He misses his wife and his kid. He has built a life for himself that per makes him perpetually unhappy. Um, and again, if anything, I suspect that Bradbury is prioritizing the family over the adventure, like as much as 
you know, Bradbury does seem enamored with rocket ships and what and wild adventures and spacemen and aliens and so on and so forth. Usually they don't pan out that well. Like we do not get the whole, you know, heroic person sets foot on a new world and is rewarded and there are parades and everything is great. Instead, there's always consequences. There are always hiccups. There are always complications. Um the world that Bradbury seems to idolize the most is the one that is at home with the loving wife and a loving children and a relationship that is deep and meaningful amongst all these people. Yes, the enticement of the exotic is out there, but it is always dangerous. It is always something potentially deadly and begging us to overextend ourselves. It is hubris to want those things in some sense. Which brings us to the long range. Like, as much as the Long Reign is structured very differently, like, this has that kind of plotting inevitability that, you know, Kaleidoscope has, um, and is why I've sort of, like, brought it together with these other two stories, um, the way that it approaches is very much relentless instead of shocking. Um, where the Velt, where the Rocket Man will uh, both have these sort of shock twists, like the Rocket Man, we, we get this little warning about, you know, how the mother is never going to forgive whatever s celestial body kills her husband. And if it's, in fact, Mars that he dies on, then she'll always want to go inside when Mars emerges into the sky. But then we are told at the very end that he dies not on Mars, but by falling into the sun. And as a consequence, like, for years, he, he and his mother refuse to go outdoors while it's sunny and will only go out while it's rainy or at night. Like, just reckoning with, you know, how the sun itself is a reminder of this this mortality, of this death, and how it was totally hubris. Again, he literally flew too close to the sun in this case, um, and therefore the sun itself is considered guilty and destroys their lives as a consequence. Um, here in the long reign, though, and this is probably one of my other favorite stories in this collection, like right up there with the belt, the long reign is a about the relentlessness of the unusual, the unfamiliar. Um, if the Rocket Man dies because he flies too close to the sun, the characters in the long reign die because they are so removed from it. They are also in a place that they do not belong, a place that is hostile and cold and unfriendly and unhuman, much like the characters in Kaleidoscope. Um, Venus is a world where it never stops raining. And by that I mean never. Like, it is always dark and it is always gloomy and the sun is always obscured behind clouds. And for that matter, these guys who have crash-landed on this planet, not where they're supposed to land, are wandering around trying to get out of the rain and cannot. For, like, days, even weeks straight, they are sitting there getting rained on. They can't sleep. They can't like eat they can't protect themselves from the rain they can't build an effective shelter like at one point one of the guys tries to build a hat out of the, the sort of like plants that are growing and the plants themselves as soon as you pluck them they immediately rot and disintegrate um the entire world is totally hostile um totally colorless totally sort of a violation of everything that humans need. And importantly, this is contrasted against the pleasures that are provided in the Sun Dome. And it's not anything sophisticated. Like, yeah, the Sun itself and the Sun Dome, the artificial suns hanging out in them, they sound pretty technologically sophisticated. Like, we're talking about some pretty serious fusion technology and Spider-Man 2 nonsense in order to get this. But when we, in fact, come to the Sun Dome, it's not 
like as much as the sun is the thing that the the main character is most focused on, it's the little pleasures that are sort of emphasized here. The fact that you get dry clothes, that you get hot chocolate, that you get a robe, that you get a cot that's comfortable and soft to sleep on. These pleasures are necessary, Bradbury is emphasizing. Remove them and things get dark fast. Um, which is, you know, emphasized by the fact that we start with like a good handful of characters, five or six of them, and every single one of them is picked off, not by some monster or by some, you know, like kind of like thriller antagonist, you know, some Jason going around just like axing people to death. Instead, what we're talking about here is just the environment getting to them, like getting under their skin. Um, at one point, the whole of Venus is compared to Chinese water torture. The idea that you're just sort of like stuck somewhere with a drop of water hitting you every 30 minutes at the, the sort of anticipation driving you insane. Um, that it's little things that can ultimately drive a person to distraction and even madness and even suicide, as in the case with two of the characters here. Um, now, some of the hostility is more overt. Like, we get the elec the electrical storm that shows up and, like, absolutely kills at least one person who tries to get up and run away out of fear. Um, we also have the sort of, you know, problem with navigation. Like, the electrical storm is throwing off their compasses, so they end up walking in a circle right back to their rocket. Um, so, you know, the usual hostilities of being in a wilderness very much apply here, um, as well as the natives themselves. Like, the Venusians come up from the sea and destroy one of the sun domes, and the first one that they would have arrived at. So there are clearly, like, other dangers out there. But the real danger here is the rain. It is the constantness of this foreignness, the inhospitality of this planet. Um, and to some degree, like, this is something that has been emphasized in a lot of contemporary science fiction as well. Like, Bradbury is still working with fairly old understandings of what these other planets are like. You know, just like we talked about the canals of Mars being a scientific error that Bradbury capitalizes on in the Martian Chronicles. Like, he does something similar here in, in our understanding of Venus. Um, yes, Venus is way more inhospitable than even this, this story seems to make out. But what Bradbury manages to get at here that many interpretations of, you know, science fiction survival uh, in recent memory have not is where the contemporary science fiction story tends to emphasize the suddenness of death. Like, you know, you watch Interstellar and it's like, you know, this, this person is just immediately asphyxiated or their helmet breaks and immediately depressurized. Here it is a slow, gnawing, inevitable kind of dying. Uh, which Bradbury is more interested in here. Uh, there is a horror to that suddenness, the way that it is usually expressed in more contemporary science fiction. But there is also something horrible about the inevitability of it. They're just waiting to die because you're running out of oxygen or because you're falling into the Earth's atmosphere or because the rain will slowly and inevitably drive you insane. Uh, and again, the suspense and the tension, the way that Bradbury sort of describes this world, that's why I love this story so much. Like, that's why I feel, you know, I can safely call it one of my favorites in the collection, and this collection one of my favorites among all of Bradbury's work. That just driving rain, the fact that every time they try and find shelter from it, like some new thing just inevitably following from the rain just gets in their way. Like, the 
fact when they try and sleep, the plants immediately start growing on them, and like there are mushrooms and funguses just taking over their body as they're sort of reclaimed by the earth itself. Like, that's some really crazy evocative imagery there, and I just love what Bradbury does with his Venus stories, um, and that sort of, again, emphasis on both the hubris and the inhospitability of these planets. Um, but again, we are getting waxing poetic, and we need to move on. Um, on the one hand, I kind of want to talk about the other foot. On the other hand, I kind of don't want to talk about the other foot. Um, so, again, when I did my decolonization piece on Bradbury, I talked about the both way in the middle of the air and the other foot in, a, in a, an appendix, of all things. Um, but in the other foot, like, where the way in the middle... Way in the middle of the air, I'm willing to largely excuse as being a very obvious attempt by Bradbury to depict the realities of racism and not gloss over them, something that was very unusual here in 1950. Um, the other foot doesn't downplay the realities of racism, but it also kind of makes some big presumptions on the part of black people in general. Um, like, you'll remember when I talked about the, the other... Uh, story that I really liked in the Martian Chronicles, the one where, you know, the guy calls himself a Martian and the, the Native American who's on the trip says, I don't see any Martian here. You know, Bradbury very clearly understood the line there. Uh, that, yes, we could admire and appreciate this lost culture, but we cannot claim to be an authority or a spokesperson for it if we are not ourselves a member of it. Here in the other foot, he forgets this lesson. Um, the whole premise is, okay, so it's the black colony on Mars that's here after way in the middle of the air when all the black people left Earth and decided to set up shop on Mars anyway. And now we have the white people show up. Like, there is a rocket coming from Earth, and the black people start to prepare for him by, you know, doing basically other foot segregation. Um, so we paint signs in the trolley cars that say, you know, whites in the back only. Or we tell, we, like... Uh, tag certain restrooms as being for blacks only and not for whites. Um, or we rope off like the worst seats in the theater for whites. Um, the, it is very much emphasized here that now the shoe is on the other foot. Like that's why we get the story, the title that we do. Um, and our primary character is, is sort of encouraging everyone to get their shotguns together, get their, their hanging ropes together. We're going to lynch white people from time to time just to show them a lesson. Um, and then the white people show up and they say, hey, Earth is destroyed. All of the bad places where these bad things had been done before, where black people were lynched or where you know black people were persecuted, they have all been destroyed. We are throwing ourselves on your mercy, and the black folks ultimately decide to forgive them. Um, they tear down all of these signs, and they tear down all of the, the restrictions, and now white and black people will be able to hang out, you know, totally copacetically, totally in equality. And we even get this line from our main character, Willie, that it seems like for the first time today I really seen the white man. Um... On the one hand, I get the theory here, and I like the idea, and conceptually this is interesting. On the other hand, the execution here is a little rough. Um, like I said in my appendix that I thought that Way in the Middle of the Air had redeeming value and the other foot did not, and I was fully willing to skip it in my future reads of The Illustrated Man. I read it this time for completion's sake, and I didn't care for it any more now than I did then. Um, it is pandering. 
Uh, it is overreaching on Bradbury's part to assume that he can speak for the black community on this one. Um, and the fact that the black community is, at the end of the day, willing to forgive the whites, yeah, that's ideal. That would be the correct moral here um, from a purely, you know, writerly, like, philosophical standpoint. But the reality of the situation is justice would call for something else. Um, justice would call for a certain amount of other foot segregation here. Um, and that's not something that Bradbury's willing to say, because Bradbury's not actually having that experience. Bradbury doesn't have that anger or resentment. Bradbury doesn't feel the way that I imagine most black people actually do. If they are willing to forgive us, that will be their prerogative, not ours. Uh, we will not be able to say, you know, you should forgive us because it is the right thing to do the way that Bradbury does here. They will have to make that decision for themselves. Um, which I suspect is kind of reductive in its own right. All the more reason to get off this story because, again, it's not one of Bradbury's best. Conceptually, yes, I get it. And conceptually, it is an interesting idea. I'd love to see an actual black science fiction writer try this concept. Um, but... I wouldn't urge them to. I imagine that they would have other things that they're more interested in. Um, so, moving along, let's talk about what I would like to call the not-so-bad apocalypses. Um, specifically, The Highway and The Last Night of the World, the last story that we read for today. Um, these I found kind of interesting because when contrasted against The Martian Chronicles and Fahrenheit 451, which are also both about the end of the world, um, it's interesting to see that Bradbury doesn't seem to have a whole lot of trouble with the end of the world. Like, I compared Bradbury's The Velt to, to Kicks and Lou and, and his stories before, and Kicks and Lou is also kind of funny because he, too, loves to write stories about the end of the world. Uh, like, he has ended the world multiple times between the Three Body Trilogy, the Wandering Earth Collection, and a bunch of his other stories. Um, and there is a weird tendency in science fiction to kind of end up writing and rewriting the end of the world. You know, Douglas Adams in The Hitchhiker's Guide ends the world at least twice, possibly more, um, over the course of his works. And when he was writing for Doctor Who, he tended to do the same thing. Uh, there are a surprising number of writers in this genre who like to talk about the world ending for one reason or another. And in Bradbury here, we have these two stories, The Highway and Last Night of the World, which are also both sort of dwelling on this end of the world, but downplaying the destructiveness of it. Where Fahrenheit 451 and the Martian Chronicles present the end of the world as a sort of inevitable tragedy resulting from human hubris, here we see the end of the world being not so bad. Like, in the highway, we're following the story of this guy who apparently runs this little, like, gas station on the side of this highway, presumably uh, close to the Mexican-American border, um, and how he relies on this highway for all of the things that he has. Um, so he's got, like, a bull that is this hubcap that fell off of a car at one point. Um, he has his income because of all of the cars that pass by. Um, and today is a lucky day. There are tons of cars and many of them need gas and they're making a whole bunch of money. And it, when he finally inquires of the last car, you know, why are all these people going this direction? The response is, haven't you heard it's the end of the world? At which point our protagonist says, what the heck is the world? 
Um, what I'm, I find this one to be really kind of interesting. It struck me more this time than I than it has on on prior readings, um, just because I find it interesting to think that the end of the world is a social phenomenon, like it is a class-based phenomenon. You know, poor people won't notice when the world ends in short, in the same way that poor people didn't notice when the Renaissance happened, or poor people didn't notice that, like, a big world-ending war was occurring. Was occurring. Like, Bradbury is very much emphasizing here that when our world ends, that just means that for other people, life is going to keep on going. Um, the social structures that are in place, the civil collapse that we might all anticipate as a result of climate change or as a result of, you know, nuclear warfare, as it is in this case, as much as it will be destructive and as much as it will affect many, many lives, there are other lives that won't be affected, who won't even notice. And I find that to be kind of cool, um, that Bradbury is aware of this phenomenon. Like, I myself remember having a conversation with my grandmother, who was, at the time, like, 80 years old in the early 2000s. Um, and I asked her what it was like to live through the Great Depression, because, you know, at this point we were talking about it in school. I was curious. And she answered that she didn't know there was a Great Depression happening. She lived on this little backwater farm in the middle of the country. You know, as much as we talk about, like, the Dust Bowl as being one of the major factors bringing about the, the Great Depression and all of these farmers in the middle of the country being seriously affected, their livelihoods ruined, that's probably not the whole story. Farmers are, as a rule, fairly self-sufficient. Maybe they're not making money, maybe they're not maintaining their machinery, but they're still directly related to the food that they're producing. And as a consequence, you know, if in fact the rest of society dies on them, your average farmer is going to be okay. They will still have food, they will still be able to, you know, maintain the, the household, they will still be able to keep having kids. Um, it's the cities that will suffer and die. It's the middle managers who will end up out of jobs and, and wishing for, for, you know, some other livelihood. It's they who will be migrating, not the farmers. Um, poor people generally aren't going to be too terribly invested in the time and tides of cultures' rises and falls. On some level, they are the ones who always suffer, and I don't want to downplay that at all. Um, but at least here on the highway, I think Bradbury gets at something true. The people who are suffering a lot now aren't going to notice when your suffering becomes, like, incredibly worse, because their suffering will only become marginally worse. Yes, a poor person who gets cancer from a nuclear fallout from a nuclear war that they had no investment in, that's going to suck for them, and they are going to be the victims of this. But they're not going to suffer when Wall Street fails, and they're not going to suffer when the malls all fall apart, and they're not going to suffer when the grocery store collapses. They've got a contingency plan, as far as that's concerned, because they've been living without those conveniences and luxuries for a very long time. Um... The other side of this, though, the, the last night of the world, is even more sort of tranquil. Like, this story is just fascinating to me. This idea that, like, everybody has this dream one night that the world is going to end tomorrow. And they're all just cool with it. Like, the dream is peaceful. They all know it's going to happen. Presumably it does happen, though we don't admittedly see it happen on the page. And yet everybody just is peaceful about it. The kids are put to bed, the adults, they, they, you know, like, appreciate their love for each other, they hug, they kiss, they go to bed, and they're good. Like, so many of our end-of-the-world stories are about the violence of the end of the world. 
or just the, the sheer destructive power of the end of the world, or the suffering caused in the wake of the end of the world, or the society that tries to like stitch itself back together in the wake of the end of the world. The idea that the end of the world might actually be something comforting, that it might be something quiet and still, this is unusual. Um, on the one hand, I think it's kind of dangerous, especially here in 2022. Like, we've already got quite a few people arguing for some sort of accelerationist approach to the end of the world. Like, let's just burn the jungles and let the world die and start work on rebuilding from the ashes. And I think that's a really dangerous attitude because it is ignoring a lot of the realities of just being a person and just unconscionably unethical. Um... But nonetheless, the idea that the end of the world will be good is something that is reflected here. Um, the idea that the end of the world isn't going to be a whole bunch of people riding around in cars with guns shooting each other, that's nice to think about. The idea that death itself, because that's essentially what Bradbury is talking about here, is something not bad, something that is sort of like the appropriate rest and peace and quiet after a long life spent wasted on, you know, things that other people thought were important. That's interesting to me. Um, and it is comforting. It is a rare story about comfort among all of these, you know, gloom and doom, dark kind of stories about people dying in inhospitable wildernesses and on foreign planets, um, or about, like, parents getting their comeuppance for being bad, or, you know, like, uh, men being getting their comeuppance for not living their lives properly. Um, this is comfortable. And the fact that Bradbury can associate the sort of end-of-the-world drama that we've seen in the likes of Fahrenheit 451 with something comforting is interesting. Maybe Bradbury isn't taking the end-of-the-world so seriously because it is so constant a threat. Like, we can't forget that this is Cold War literature here. Like, we are talking about the, the very omnipresent danger of nuclear war at all, at any and all moments. Um, like, it is obviously a feature of, of the highway, it is obviously a feature of Fahrenheit 451, it is obviously a feature of the Martian Chronicles. You know, Bradbury is clearly very preoccupied with this, you know, potentiality. And he is not the only one. Many of the science fiction writers writing at this time are equally preoccupied with these problems. Um, but turning it around, making it something comfortable, I have to wonder if this is, you know, a coping mechanism or, you know, a technique to sort of, like, allow us to function on a basic day-to-day -day level. Um, but I also have to think that there isn't something richer to this, that there, you know, let's go ahead and end this war. Um, what is the worst that could happen in some sense? Like, the annihilation of humanity here is better than the constant fear, constant anxiety, constant tension. Um, I don't know. It's interesting, at the very least. Once again, one of those classic Bradbury, let's throw an idea at the wall and see what sticks uh, kind of story. Um, so with that in mind, if we're going to be talking about death as potentially a good thing and peaceful endings, naturally it's time to talk about the two religious stories in the room. Um, the man and the fire balloons. Uh, so the man is another one of those that's just high concept, like let's just throw this idea out and see what sticks. Um, the idea here being that this man, this rocket captain, Captain Hart, 
um, lands on this unknown planet that has not seen, you know, another rocket in many, many years. And while he's there, he sends out, like, somebody to report on what's going on and why they're not celebrating their arrival. And it turns out that it's because the guy is here. Like, it's not officially stated, but it's pretty clear that we're talking about Jesus. Um, the guy who we were waiting for for over two millennia has finally arrived, and everybody is just peaceful and calm and happy and totally just comfortable. Um, and importantly, the captain does not react well to this news. Um, he threatens people. He blackmails them. He, like, threatens to shoot them if they don't tell him where this guy has gone. Um, and then he finally does take off in his rocket ship to chase after this guy. And hopefully, you know, they missed him by one day today, but they'll miss him by half a day next time and a you know, quarter of a day the next time and so on. But big shock twist turns out that the guy who everybody thought was the mayor is in fact Jesus, the guy himself. His peacefulness, his tranquility is in fact the peacefulness and tranquility that the captain wanted so badly or said he wanted so badly because in actuality he feels the obligation to go fight for it and take it. The fire balloons is a different kind of approach. This one is much more explicitly religious, like it follows the exploits of these two Catholic priests who travel to Mars in the search of trying to understand the Martian outlook and sort of like minister to the Martian notion of sin. Um, and our Father Peregrine, who is sort of the main character, is like eager and excited to learn about the sort of Martian notion of sin and whether or not more senses offer more sins and you know how exactly Christianity and theology will transform to meet this particular need. Uh, they do in fact meet the fire balloons who do seem like weird aliens. They're just kind of floating balls of light um, that our narrator associates with the fire balloons that he and his dad would used to make on, uh, on Independence Day. Uh, but it turns out that these creatures are apparently somewhat sentient. Uh, there's an avalanche and these two priests are saved by the Martians. Um, and then this guy just chucks himself off of a cliff, and he is saved by the Martians, and he even tries to shoot himself, and the Martians stop the bullet in its tracks. Um, so it's clear that they do have some kind of soul, as he argues. They're clearly ethical in some respect. Um, so they build a temple, like a church for them, which is just like an open field. They set up some rocks, and they make like a ball version of Jesus who's just like a sphere with a fire burning inside and this is the image that they're going to use to sort of communicate the idea of Jesus to these these Martian creatures at which point the Martians like telekinetically or telepathically communicate with them and say hey we kind of already know and we're totally chill and you really don't need to minister to us we feel bad that you've gotten all this trouble and work we have already given up on material goods and this is where we are now um and this revelation is so profound that it basically converts both Father Peregrine and, and his detractor, uh, Father Morris, I believe. Um, and as a consequence, or Father Stone, <laughs> Father Stone, because he won't budge and he's set in his ways. Get it? Yeah, Bradbury's naming conventions. Um, but yes, both of them are to some degree converted, and Father Stone is forced to admit that maybe each of the planets they could go to has part of the great theological truth here. Part of the great Christian mystery will be revealed with every sort of iteration of Martian or alien Christianity that they encounter. Um, now, obviously, both of these stories have a clear root in religion. 
Um, the man suggests that not only, you know, is Christ a real person, but he is like gallivanting around the galaxy and bringing peace and prosperity wherever he goes. Um, but importantly, the sort of theme here has less to do with Jesus and has more to do with contentment. Um, the captain s claims to seek this peace and tranquility, this, you know, great truth of the universe, but he can't recognize it when it's sitting in front of him. It's something he has to take, something he has to find himself, something he has to conquer for himself. Um, likewise, here in the fire balloons, Father Peregrine is presented much more positively. Like, he is, you know, eager and excited and, and eager to minister, but he is, at the end of the day, wrong. Um, which I find really interesting. This story is surprisingly sophisticated, even, you know, like, even by Bradbury's standards. Um, Father Peregrine is too active, too human in his pursuit of, of Jesus and his pursuit of religion. Um, he fails to see what is in front of him as well, namely that the Martians are already quite comfortable. Um, that he is ministering to the choir in some sense, that they already know perhaps even more than he does about the mysteries of religion. Um, so the question that I found myself asking was, well, what does this mean about Bradbury? What is he actually telling us about religion here? Because this is not the first time we've encountered it, for sure. Like in Fahrenheit 451, the fact is that Montag is carrying around the Bible with him, for most of the book, trying to read it desperately and sort of coming away as like the only person who knows Ecclesiastes and Revelation. And at the time, I mentioned that, you know, I suspect that this doesn't show a religious bent on Bradbury's part so much as he is tapping into the sort of uh, like the wisdom of Ecclesiastes and the apocalyptic uh, theming of, of Revelation. Um, something very appropriate for a book that is effectively about recognizing your surroundings and forestalling that apocalypse. Here, though, we see a greater embrace of religion. You know, Jesus as an actual thing to be aspired for, a thing to be defended. Um, and Bradbury even gets at the theological truth that Jesus isn't something you can, like, take. It is something that is given freely, and you are not in any way responsible for it. If hubris is one of the, the main antagonists in many of these stories, it's noteworthy to point out that this is a story essentially about humility. Both of these are, which is a distinctly Christian virtue, and Bradbury seems to have a pretty decent handle on it, um, which I find surprising. Like, I've never thought of Bradbury as a terribly religious writer, but it seems to dovetail with his philosophy quite nicely. Um, most of the themes that Bradbury has been kicking around can be aligned with Christian thinking and theology. Um, he clearly has a respect for the world around him. He has a sort of awe and grandeur for the mysteries of creation understood in some grand sense. We see here that he also has a great respect for humility. Most of Bradbury's most successful heroes are those who do walk carefully in these hallowed halls of space and time, who, you know, appreciate the fact that they are just small, insignificant travelers in the history of the universe and who are appropriately awed uh, by the grandeur that they encounter. You know, like you're supposed to be appropriately awed when you set foot in a church. 
Bradbury has a kind of romantic notion of God, I think, in the sense of the romantic movement in the 19th century where God was very much equated with the mysteries of nature and the sort of like unknowable being whose activities were themselves, you know, incomprehensible to petty humans. Bradbury definitely seems to be aligned with the romantics in that respect. Um, he too calls for humility. He too calls for a mysterious God. But here in The Man especially, the fact that we do sort of accept and at least explore the possibility of Christianity being true, I wonder if that doesn't sort of reveal an even deeper religious streak on Bradbury's part. Like, He's definitely not an apologist the way that, you know, C.S. Lewis or J.R.R. Tolkien are, despite the fact that they are all working in the speculative fiction genre. Um, but I have to think that there is something very conservative, something very traditional, and something very theological about the way that Bradbury writes and what Bradbury prefers to write about. It may be at least part of the reason why he appeals to me so much, or why my own Christianity is so deeply grounded as it is, if we decide to flip that conversation around. Um, it's something that we should explore more, anyway. Something that we should look for more hints of. I would be very hesitant to call Bradbury a Christian without qualification, but I think he's way more sympathetic to Christianity than many of the other science fiction writers in his vein. Um, and I wonder if his fascination with horror, with human destruction and self-destruction, isn't tied to some sort of deep notions about sin and about the sort of, you know, deeper rea spiritual realities that are, like, prescribed and, and described by Christianity. Um, I wonder if we might attribute the great titanic battles of good and evil to Bradbury's own understanding of his faith. Um, but that's a conversation for another day, I suspect, or perhaps something that we'll only be able to understand even a little bit as we go further through his work. Um, for next time, we are simply finishing the collection. Um, we've got another nine stories to go and explore, some of which are some of my all-time favorites, like The City. Um, but honestly, I like the, the front half of this book considerably more than the back, usually. So we'll see if I have new revelations and changes of perspective here. Um, we'll also be able to see the end of our framing device of the illustrated man. Um, so let's read our next nine stories, and we'll talk about them next time. I look forward to talking about them with you soon. Hey, thanks for listening. I look forward to having some new content out next week for you. And in the meantime, I highly recommend that you check out my other projects on professorkozlowski.wordpress.com, which is the sort of center for all of the things I'm doing online these days. Um, and please, if you like this, share it, subscribe to it, send it out, get everybody to know that I'm making lectures and talking about something that you're interested in. Um, the more listeners I have, the more people I have following me, the better chance there is that I'll be able to continue doing this. And if you can, please consider contributing to my Patreon at www.patreon.com slash Professor Kozlowski. Um, I've already got a few patrons. We are up and running. Um, but the more money I'm making through this project, the more I can devote my time and energy to my projects online, and the less I have to worry about things like rent and feeding myself. Um, so please, keep, keep listening, keep sharing, keep subscribing. And as much as you can, keep contributing. Uh, I'll see you soon.